Esther chapter 9, verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday. That they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, the lot, to disturb them and to destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme which he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who had allied themselves with them, so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews, or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely, words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the study of your word. And I pray you would open our hearts to the speaking of your Holy Spirit as we consider the gladness of these days of Purim. Father, as with everything we have studied so far in the Bible, I believe this is here for a reason and not just a reminder of an annual holiday, but I believe there's something you would speak to our hearts this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite your presence here to surround us, to encompass us, to hem us in behind and before, and to speak words of gladness to us. Father, though this is a time of holiday and celebration in our country, there's an awful lot of sadness that impedes the joy. And so I pray, Father, that the spirit of gladness, that the fruit of joy would be born out among us, and that we would see what you've intended for your people. Spirit be our teacher this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Including today, you have five shopping days left before Christmas. So gentlemen, start your engines. I think it's only fair to remind you, Thursday night is Christmas Eve. So uh, guys especially, you may want to set aside late afternoon on Thursday to go ahead and start your Christmas shopping. Do that annual last minute panic stricken, she's going to kill me if I botch this one shopping spree. (laughs) But we love our holidays, don't we? But the truth is that God has hardwired into mankind the desire to celebrate. We like a party. 
We like to get together and rejoice. We love to laugh. We love to have fun together. And somewhere in the history of the church, some idiot came along and tried to say that celebration is not godly. Well, wrong-o Mary Lou. (laughs) Celebration is one of the most godly things you can do. Joy is of the Holy Spirit. This is a God-ordained thing. In fact, as we've talked about recently, His joy precedes our joy. Joy and celebration and happiness is not something we evolved into. It's not something of human invention. It is something of the divine that springs out of our hearts. Joy is. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, you should know the verse well by now. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 16.11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your, you know, it was funny when they were holding up the signs during the, the choir this morning. It was like, oh, okay, it says applause, so we can applaud now. You know, It says make noise, so I can make noise. And I was thinking, what's it going to be like around the throne of God? I'll tell you what, there's not going to be anybody standing in the foyer during worship time in heaven. It's not going to be anybody sitting back going, I'm not sure if this is the appropriate time to make a joyful noise. (laughs) Because the God of all joy and all salvation will be right there before us. And I believe His joy will draw out our joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And He's able to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, Jude writes in verse 24 of that great little letter. Isaiah 25 verse 6 tells us, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples. There's something that, that snuck up on me as I was studying through Esther. Got to the end of it and looking back over it for this morning, I realized the banquets and the feasts of Esther are the framework of the book. That if you know the feasts that are talked about in this book, you know the story of Esther. Because the story literally hangs from one banquet to the next. There are seven of them listed in the book of Esther. The first banquet, or the first feast, in chapter 1, verse 3, is given by King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. He kicks off that 180-day display of grandeur there in Persia. Look at how great we are. And as we talked about, that feast really was was kind of a a war council. He was trying to draw in and show everybody how good life was and how much they had and what they needed to defend and fight for. And, And the reason why they needed to go out and conquer in the first place, we need to plunder our victims so we can continue to have this grandeur and glory. Well, that's the first feast. The second feast, right after it, in verse 5 of chapter 1, is also given by Xerxes. At the end of the six-month fall to all, as he's still politically maneuvering for war. The result after that feast is an agreement that ends up in the Battle of Thermopylae, on which the movie 300, if you saw that, uh, I didn't. I heard it was a bloodbath. In fact, I even heard it described as blood was uh, considered paint on canvas. Uh, as far as the director was concerned. He considered that just a color in the canvas of the picture of that movie. So I heard it was pretty pretty violent. But in that battle, Persia won, but at the cost of hundreds of thousands of Persian lives. And it began the end of, of Persia's great rule. Well, that was the second feast. The third feast also happens in chapter 1. So, bang, 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 we have three feasts in a row. Verse 9 of chapter 1, concurrent with the second feast, is the third feast given by Queen Vashti for the women. Now, it's significant because it's during that feast that Xerxes calls up his wife, the queen, 
and says, hey, I want you to come to the feast for the men because I want to show you off a bit. I want them to see what a lovely piece of furniture I have in my marriage. His attitude is all wrong. She doesn't want to be on display as an object. And so disgusted, she refuses and ends up deposed as the queen. Highly significant because in that fleshly, you know, base attitude of man, in that the hand of providence begins to move. As Vashti is removed from the position, and the Lord moves to have Esther called up. An important moment in the entire story. Behind the scenes, Esther is coming into her place where she will become queen for such a time as this. The fourth feast. Well, the fourth feast is not really as much a feast as it is happy hour for King Xerxes and the Jew-hating Haman. Look in Esther chapter 3, verse 15. Esther 3, 15. Which tells us the couriers went out impelled by the king's command. What command is that? Is the decree that was issued to destroy and wipe out all the Jews. It would be a, roughly a year after that. But the decree was issued to give people plenty of time to know this was the day of the destruction of the Jewish people. You know, you can look forward to it, circle it on your calendar, plan ahead, make sure your weapons are oiled and ready. And it tells us that this decree was issued while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. While the king and Haman, they sat down to drink. And the city of Susa was in confusion. Uh, a fourth feast. Had King Xerxes lived in Anacortes, no doubt he would have spent a lot of time at the Brown Lantern. <laughs> Rabbis refer to Xerxes as a fool of a king. And not without cause. In fact, it's a good title. A fool of a king. He had really little or no regard for human life. As in the Battle of Thermopylae, where hundreds of thousands of his people were killed for no need. Needless fact, there are some who, who estimate in, in the millions of Persians were killed in that battle. And Xerxes comes home, and if you recall the story, was upset because um, he missed his wife. Poor Xerxes. He was a fool of a king. Here he is, toasting with Haman in the capital, in the palace, while the whole citadel, the whole region, the capital city of Persia, as with all Persia, is in confusion. Something's wrong. And you almost get the picture of Nero fiddling while Rome burns. This fool of a king. And in the foolishness of King Xerxes, we see a proverb played out that I think we ought to pay some attention to. Proverbs 31, verse 4. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. It's interesting how much wine flows, how much drinking goes on in the book of Esther. There's quite a bit. We get to the fifth feast. The fifth feast is in chapter 6, and it's given by Esther with the intent of explaining to the king exactly what he had decreed, namely her destruction and the destruction of her people. And with Haman sitting there present, so Haman the Jew-hater who wanted all the Jews killed, and Xerxes there and Esther, just the three of them at this fifth feast, Esther tries to summon the courage to tell the king who her enemy is, to indict Haman and to plead for her people, but she can't quite get there. And who can blame her? She's looking at the most powerful man in the world. Yes, her husband. But her husband has the right to kill her as, as much as look at her. 
And she's looking at him, and there's Haman, and she doesn't, I mean, when she spills the beans, what's going to happen? Will she be driven through with a sword? Will she lose her life? That's kind of what she's expecting. And so by the end of this fifth feast, she can't say anything. She just says, my request is this, will you come to dinner tomorrow? Let's do another feast. In the meantime, however, it was highly significant the hand of providence is still moving. God needed one more night, for it was that night, while Xerxes was trying to sleep, that he calls for the chronologers to bring in the history and read to him And in reading that history, you may recall, he hears the name Mordecai, who was loyal to him, who who staved off an execution attempt, an assassination attempt. And so he says, what can we do for Mordecai? And the story rolls on from there. God needed that time to insert that moment. So we come to the sixth feast in chapter 7. It's the most dramatic. It's a great chapter. I shared on Wednesday night, you can almost hear the drumbeats of drama as you enter into chapter 7. And there's Esther, and there's Haman, and there's Xerxes. And Haman's had a very strange night himself, and a strange day in having to honor Mordecai. And he sits down there, and, and there's confusion all around. And Esther, she blows it wide open. In fact, look at this. Chapter 7 and verse 7. We'll look at verse 6. Esther finally says, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine, there he is again, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Not protocol. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, meaning they they came in and took him into custody. Then Harbonah, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. But as you Bible students know, The threat didn't end there. It wasn't over with the death of Haman, for the irrevocable decree of genocide for the Jewish people was still out there. It was still in play. So what happened? Well, this is the beauty of the story. Now Mordecai, elevated to to Haman's place as second in command to the king, now he's holding the king's signet ring. He comes up with another ruling. A second decree, chapter 8, verse 11 tells us, In them the king granted to to the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, in the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. A second decree is offered. The Jews throughout all of Persia are given legal right of self-defense on the same day of Haman's command for annihilation. Do you see what's happening? One decree, the Jews must be killed. And so in response to that, the second decree, the Jews have the right to fight back. Just on this day, otherwise they could be indicted themselves for creating a ruckus, but on this day you are allowed to fight back, to defend yourselves. And we talked about this Wednesday, but I want to make sure you all hear this. It's an amazing, amazing thing we see in the book of Esther. 
You cannot revoke the first law, but you can write a new law. And that's exactly what the Lord did. You can't revoke the law of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, but the law of the Lord condemns. And so He gave us a second law, the second covenant, the new covenant which defends. As with the book of Esther, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, is why we rejoice. It's where the joy comes from. Paul says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. First law, perfect law, irrevocable. Second law, removes the death threat of the first. This is what we see in Esther, and this is what we see in our lives. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 tells us, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a new decree, a new law. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now that brings us to the seventh and final feast of the book of Esther. It's the one I want to talk about this morning. A feast of rejoicing and laughter and celebration unlike almost any other in the Jewish calendar year. The seventh feast is the Feast of Purim. You're spelling that out, P-U-R-I-M, Purim. And with the rest of our time, I want to give you just three things to think about regarding Purim. And it has application directly to us. Number one, Purim is a time of celebration. Purim is a time of celebration. You know, it's amazing how few people in the world who are not Jewish even know anything about Purim. And yet it's one of their favorite holidays of the entire year. It's one of the most important. Annually, the Jews celebrate it. It happens on the 14th and 15th days of Adar. Actually, now it's settled into just the 14th day of Adar. But it's the last month of the Jewish religious calendar right around our March time frame. Here's how it goes. Every last month of the year on the 13th of Adar, in the evening, it's called the Ta'anit Esther or the Fast of Esther. The Jews all day on the 13th will fast. Get up that morning, no breakfast, no lunch, and then at sundown they go to synagogue. Now you know on the Jewish calendar at sundown you begin then the next day. So you enter into the 14th day of Adar at sundown on the 13th. They'll go to synagogue, but it's unlike any synagogue service all year long. Having fasted all day long, they pour into the synagogues in the evening and the story of Esther is recounted in the most rambunctious way you can imagine. I mean, the little signs they were holding up, nothing like what happens in the retelling of the story of Esther. There's booing and hissing every time Haman's name is mentioned. Every time Esther or Mordecai are mentioned, they stomp their feet and cheer. Woohoo! All right! Mordecai! Go, Esther! They'll clap. It, it, it resembles in many ways the old melodramas. The people cheering for, for the, uh, the protagonist and booing the villain. It's a wonderful time. They even have noisemakers called Ra'ashan that the kids will spin. Those grinders, you know, and they'll use those every time that Haman's name is mentioned. It's, it's wonderful. And then Haman went into the king. You know. And they have a wonderful time. And they'll dress up in costume. And they'll, they'll portray this whole thing. Great audience participation depicting the characters and the story. They, they just have a ball with this with this synagogue service. And then they'll go home and they'll continue to feast and party and have a wonderful time all the way through the next day. 
on the 14th, they will return to synagogue where the story is read again. <laughs> and many times it's coupled with Exodus 17. Exodus 17, that story of Moses and the people at Rephidim. Do you remember that? They, they will recount verses 8 through 16. And it's Joshua fighting the Amalekites. And it's Moses up on the mountain, hands spread apart. Do you remember why? Because it's from the Amalekites that eventually King Agag comes. And it's from King Agag that eventually Haman, the Agagite, is born out. Well, the Jews will follow this by celebrating with sending gift baskets of candy and treats, something like our Easter. In fact, if you, if you took the fun of Christmas, the, the costuming of Halloween, and, and the, the baskets and, and the color and joy of Easter, and you put that all, kind of roll it all into one, that is Purim. That gives you a sense of it. Jewish children love Purim. It's just a time of fun and partying and rejoicing and laughter and lots of drinking. (laughs) Verse 22 of chapter 9 says, Because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So again, a time of great celebration is Purim. Because God knows how to turn sorrow into gladness. God knows how to turn mourning into a holiday. Psalm 30 verse 10 says, Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And of course it was Jesus who said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And when Jesus says those who mourn shall be comforted, He's not talking about a pat on the back. You know, oh, I'm so sorry. It's going to be okay. He's talking about true comfort that erases the mourning that removes the sorrow and brings you into a place of peace and joy. And I want to say this to you all. If you're feeling any weight of sorrow today, would you bring it to Jesus? Just bring it to Jesus. Don't bear that thing yourself. In fact, let's pause and do that right now. Father, I want to pray for the heart of the person here. I know of at least one. I know there are probably many more who are feeling the weight of sorrow. And I pray today, Lord, You will turn mourning into gladness. That You will give us, even in difficulties in life, opportunity to rejoice. And Father, bring comfort to the heart of those who are aching. In Jesus' name, Amen. Jesus is the only one capable, by the way, of turning your mourning into dancing. On Purim, that dancing and joyful celebration happens on the 14th of Adar around the world. But what's interesting is on the 15th of Adar, it happens in Jerusalem. 14th everywhere else, and the 15th in Jerusalem. Why is that? Watch this, it's important. The first part of Esther chapter 9 details this entire defensive battle that the Jews uh, wage against their enemies throughout Persia. And in verse 17 of chapter 9, it tells us this was done on the 13th day of the month Adar. 
And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month. That is, they fought on both days. Esther earlier says that she went to Xerxes and said, can we have one more day? We need an extension because we're not through. The fighting continues and Xerxes said, yeah, go ahead. So it tells us the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th day of the same month and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas or the outlying areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. So here's the picture. In Persia at the time, on the 14th, all of the provinces celebrated. On the 15th, the Jews inside the capital of Susa celebrated. So two separate days for this one celebration took place at that time. And the way the Jews commemorate that today is outside of Jerusalem, the celebration of Purim is on the 14th. Inside of Jerusalem, the celebration of Purim is on the 15th. You're saying, why does this matter? you got to see something here. The Jews of the provinces, the Jews of the capital. Two separate places, two separate celebrations. Mordecai sees this happening. Mordecai realizes, even at the writing of the first letter, and you may have noticed that there's a second letter they end up sending out to clarify to everybody how to celebrate this, this holiday. But before they even do that, the Jews outside are already celebrating on the 14th, while their brothers are still fighting in the capital until the 15th when they get to celebrate Mordecai sees all this going on, so what does he do? He makes both days holidays. For you see, not only is Purim a time of celebration, but Purim is a test of unification. It's a test of unification. Look at verse 28. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews, or their memory fade from their descendants. And so it is today. The memory has not faded, and the celebration has not failed. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And it goes on to say in verse 31, they established these days of Purim at their appointed times. They're very specific about this. Now, I began to share this on Wednesday night, but I've thought about it more since then. It's kind of rested in my heart a little bit. The thought, I think, was, was still just forming at the time. But we need to understand something here. Too often in Christian circles, victory is marred by division. We defeat the enemy only to deflate the joy. Because after the enemy's defeat, we end up disagreeing on how to do it in and among ourselves. Where there was great unity in the battle, suddenly in the rejoicing, in the feasting, in the celebration, there becomes disunity. Oh, what are you talking about, Pastor Rick? I'm talking about this morning all around America. How different are all the opportunities of worship? How disunified is the church? This is our celebration. I mean, Sunday morning is our Purim. It's our chance to say we have been saved from the enemy. We we have seen the enemy's defeat by Jesus. It's our time of celebration and victory and worship, and yet it's different everywhere. And not only is it different, which I have no problem with, it's divisive. Well, I'm not going to go to that church because they don't hold to my particular tradition. And so suddenly this wonderful defeat turns into a, almost a sorrow that there's not more unity. Some here at the bridge, as among many churches, don't celebrate Christmas. 
Some choose not to. Others will take issue with trick-or-treating or Valentine's Day or other festive celebrations, calling them unbiblical. You know what's unbiblical? Disunity. Finding a reason to deny fellowship one to another. You know, Mordecai's got these Jews outside of the capital saying, no, we're going to celebrate on the 14th. And the Jews inside the capital say, well, we were fighting on the 14th. We're going to celebrate on the 15th. Oh, you celebrate then? So we just won't celebrate with you then. Well, we won't celebrate with you either. You got your day, we got our day. Whatever. You know, it could have been a big problem. Mordecai's solution was great. Celebrate both days. Celebrate both ways. Worship the Lord in both settings. Personal convictions sometimes will get in the way of that. And worse than that, denominational correctness, which to my mind is worse than political correctness. The Associated Foreign Press on December 27, 2007, and I believe I shared this with you two years ago, they, they leaked a story or, or wrote a story called Brawling in Bethlehem. It just cracks me up. Seven people were injured on Thursday when Greek Orthodox and Armenian priests came to blows in a dispute over how to clean the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Following the annual Christmas celebrations, Greek Orthodox priests set up ladders to clean the walls and ceilings of their part of the church, which is built over the site where it's assumed Jesus was born. But the ladders encroached on space controlled by the Armenian priests, according to photographers, who said angry words ensued and blows quickly followed. Unbelievable. For a quarter of an hour, bearded and robed priests laid into each other with fists, brooms, and iron rods. <laughs> Can you even believe this? While the photographers who had come to take pictures of the annual cleaning ceremony recorded the whole event. You see, Satan is right on hand to make sure the world sees the idiocy of religious people. Amazing tells us a dozen unarmed Palestinian policemen were sent to try to separate the priests, but two of them were also uh, injured in the unholy melee. Melee is a game you can play on Nintendo. It is not something that's supposed to happen in the church. Paul writes in Romans 14.5, One person regards one day above another. Another person regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. So if you celebrate Christmas as I do and my family, we love Christmas. You should see our house. It's a Christmas parlor. I love the the celebration and the holiday. But you know what? We celebrate it to the Lord. And we thank Him for the joy that He brings into our family and into our lives. We thank Him for the coming of Jesus into this world. And that's the way we do it. Now some would be convinced, ah, you know, I just, I just don't feel good about that. Okay, then whatever you do on Christmas Day, if you don't have the tree up and the decorations and all the rest, if it's just you and your family, celebrate the day to the Lord. Give the day to the Lord. Paul goes on and he says, not one of us lives for himself, And not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Paul's very clear. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. But gang, once we are convinced, once we are convicted, seek unity. Seek unity. Look for every opportunity for oneness as a fellowship, as as a larger church body. 
That's the heart of the Lord. That is the work of the Spirit. Now you may say, Rick, I, haven't we talked a lot about unity lately? And I, and I would say, yeah, isn't that interesting? It's not by my design. It seems to be coming up a lot. I don't know if that's because we're staring down a possible building project here in the next few months. Probably. Has something to do with it. I know this. The Lord in His wisdom has a message for the Bridge Fellowship at this season in our life. Seek unity. Not because there's a problem. I'm not aware of any disunity going on. But watch out. Watch out. Because if this fellowship is going to move forward in the Lord, we're going to have to do it together. And we're going to have to do it putting each other ahead of ourselves and not through division and backbiting. That's what tears churches apart. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so Esther and Mordecai, they issue a second letter going out regarding Purim saying, Celebrate both days. If you're in the capital, on the 15th. If you're outside the capital, on the 14th. This is a time to unify in victory, not to divide. So, Purim is a time of great celebration. It's a test of unification. One more thing. Some rabbis teach that when Messiah comes, all other celebratory feasts of Israel will become redundant. But Purim will never cease. Why? Because there is a one-word definition of Purim. A one-word... Well, it's a single word that possibly means more to the Jewish people than almost any other word. And that's deliverance. Deliverance. Purim is that picture of deliverance for the Jewish people. Number three, if you're taking notes, Purim is a type of salvation. This is why they are to celebrate it. This is why it it even portends to the future. Because it's about salvation. The salvation of the Jews in history, yes. But the coming of Messiah to save them in the future is what the rabbis will teach and look forward to. Tragically missing the fact that Messiah has come and already paved the way for them. But He's coming again to reestablish those promises and to fulfill them to the Jewish people about a kingdom. But Purim is that type of celebration. Ironically, ironically, Purim is called Purim from the word poor, meaning lot, as we've seen, because Haman wanted to cast lots for the destruction of the Jews. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, In the first month, which is in the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerosh, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Now that doesn't mean that he cast the lot every day for an entire year. It means he opened up the calendar, as we've talked about, and he began casting lots on every day of the calendar. He's a very, very superstitious, Persian-minded guy. And so he's casting lots until finally on the 13th, the lot falls, the correct lot, and he goes, oh, that's the day I'm supposed to annihilate the Jewish people. And that's the way he went about this. How often did Haman do this type of thing? Apparently, a lot. You could say it was his lot in life. But we see this truth emerge. See, you can't have a a teaching with the word lot in it and not have a pun. (laughs) From Pastor Rick, so I had to put that in there for you. But we see this one truth in the story of the book of Esther. 
And this is huge. What the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. That's very simple. You may have heard that before. I think we need to grab hold of this in faith. What the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. In every one of our lives, we see evil happening. We see harm befall brothers and sisters in Christ. We see good people hurt by things happening in the world. We see evil. But understand, the enemy's intention is always evil, but God's is always good. No matter how bad the situation, God can work to turn it for a good cause, for a good reason. You know the verse, Romans 8, 28, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. The psalmist wrote, and it's a psalm often tied to the book of Esther. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains should slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. You see, whenever there's been a Pharaoh, God always has a Moses in the wings. For every Philistine, God raises up a Samson. For every Goliath, He sends in a David. And for every Haman, there is a Mordecai. And what's amazing to me is this, that Haman takes the poor, the lot, and almost gleefully going through the calendar, he casts it over and over to land on that 13th of Adar, breathing words of bitterness and hate. How could he have known that the very day of destruction would become the day of deliverance for the Jewish people? The day he thought, as that lot fell, yes, this is the day I annihilate the Jews. And at that very precise moment, God's saying, that's the day of deliverance. Thanks for casting that lot for me, Haman. Because this is the day I have ordained for my people to be rescued. Rather than obliteration, there's celebration. The poor of destruction, listen to me, the poor of destruction became the perfect tool of salvation. But I'm not talking about the lot. I'm talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross was the tool, Satan's choice for annihilating Jesus. The cross. And at the very same time, it was God's choice for your salvation and mine. Satan thought, I'm going to cast the lot on Jesus. We're going to see him killed. How awful did things look at Golgotha that morning? Psalm 22:16. Prophetically, Jesus speaking, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 53 is spoken as those looking at this, saying, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. What was intended as the tool of destruction became the instrument of our salvation. Praise the Lord. You know, as we have just five days until Christmas morning, the thought came to me in studying this that Christmas without the cross would be a pretty lame holiday. It'd be like Halloween. Halloween's a lame holiday. Get some candy, get sick, you're done. (laughs) Christmas, think about this. Who would celebrate? Why would you celebrate 
the arrival of a freakishly fat, bearded old man ensconced in red velvet. Come on! That's a little odd. Enticing your children with candy canes at a local mall. When else would we allow that? Or sneaking into your house after your kids are in bed to try to lure your child's loyalty with gifts and presents. Yeah, that's something to celebrate. It's just weird. But the cross of Christ brings significant, even to the manger. Think about this. Without the cross, the the manger story of Jesus is an interesting story. But what good is a baby going to do? What baby could bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men? Come on. Without the cross. But you add the cross of Jesus Christ into Christmas. And suddenly the lot of destruction becomes the tool of salvation on which the hand of providence was nailed. We've talked about the hand of providence all through the study of Esther. That same hand was nailed to the cross for our salvation. The Lord didn't just call a Mordecai. He didn't just invite an Esther. He took the nail Himself to save our lives. Colossians 2.13 tells us when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh and the Jews truly were dead. They were dead. The 13th of Adar was a day of death. There was no hope. The irrevocable decree had gone out. And yet, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, and He's taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. And that, my friends, turns mourning into into gladness, and sorrow into salvation, and disaster into deliverance. The tool of destruction is the tool of salvation, the cross. And so these days were to be remembered, verse 28, And celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews, or their memory fade from their descendants. Why? Because Purim not only commemorates what happened, it anticipated what was coming. The real salvation bought through Jesus Christ.